Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Hello out there. Spooky season is officially over and we're now into deep fall. Or winter. Technically, winter doesn't start till December 21st, but this is Minnesota, and it's probably going to snow in a week. So, it's winter. So, grab a cozy blanket and some mulled wine, because this is Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where we whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And I am sick. (laughs) (laughs) I am sick. I'm sick. My fucking cat is sick. My house is a mess. But you know what? I live for this shit. So I'm here to whine about some badass babes. And Kelly and I actually, uh, we had a near head-on collision with our stories today. Uh, we were going to cover the same woman, but at the last minute, I decided to do a different story. And thank God, because I got over here and I see Kelly's web pages up and I was like, is that who you're covering? She's like, yeah, why? I'm like, because I was almost done with that story. She's like, that's not what you're doing today. I was like, no, I changed it. She's like, good. Because I, like, I don't have God, something I else. Don't have, I don't so have a fuck backup. You. <laughs> I get to cover this woman. Go fuck yourself. Sometimes we fight over women. Rarely, Which, but sometimes. Okay, is it is it feminist to fight over a woman? Like, I know it's not feminist, like, oh, fighting over a man. But, like, we're fighting over a woman. Isn't that just, like, the ultimate I think so. feminist statement? Like, mm-mm, men aren't worth it, but women, women, girl are. worth fighting for. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, um, because I'm sick, I am drinking a cranberry uh, macmosa oh. with like sparkling, sparkling grape juice, apple cider, wherever the hell it is out of. I got this super cool mug. So there's a there's a nonprofit that um, the. Okay, so the nonprofit I work for technically operates under a larger nonprofit. We're like yeah. nonprofit nesting dolls. And the larger nonprofit helps with this local one uh, called Jeremiah Project. And actually, they have, uh, they're, they're, they're a national program, but basically, they help to end generational poverty two generations at a time. So they help uh, young single mothers oh. by. Um, empowering them to continue their education and, you know, find good jobs and get a career and all that so that they can support their children. And in Rochester, we actually have, it's basically an apartment building with on-site daycare. So the mothers can live there with their children, keep going to school, and they can stay there as long as they're in school, you know, from high school to, you know, undergraduate, like whatever they're doing. And then the kids are able to go to daycare. So, because that's a huge barrier. It's like, well, what do I do with my kid? Like, I, I can't afford daycare. I can't afford to go to school to get enough money 
you afford daycare? Like it's right. a huge You're like, thing. It doesn't work that way. So they came by and they dropped off a bunch of De- Jeremiah program swag. And I got this really cool water ball that says she needed a hero. So that's what she became. And I was like, oh my God, I love this water bottle. You're like, and this is mine. Yeah, no, this is, I okay, I wasn't super selfish. I didn't touch the gift basket for like two days. And then one of my coworkers is like, did you get one of these? I was like, no, I, I felt weird taking it. She's like, you are so Minnesotan, fucking take something. Because <laughs> Minnesotans, we don't like, we don't like to be the first to take something and we don't like to take the last thing. Which is why there's always the sacrificial cupcake, the yep. last lone cupcake on the tray or the donut or whatever it is. Or it'll be a half, depending yes. on the person. Okay, I, I'll take half. I'll do that, but I will leave half behind. And that's the sacrificial bit that rots and goes stale. And then no one enjoys it because no one is willing to take it. But yeah, I don't know. Cool, cool rants about nonprofits that are supporting women. And families. That's awesome. That's such a great cause. Dude, I was thinking about that. I'm like, man, okay. Having a baby young can really, you know, it it, it changes your entire future. It it changes your entire situation. I was like, man, if only there was a place where you could go or you could just kind of like live your life, not have to worry about like a bunch of, you could just focus on your education and raising your child. How great would that be? And that's what this is. Like, oh my god, they did it. It's awesome. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So, uh, now that we've discussed what we're drinking. Well, I didn't discuss what I was drinking. Well, what are you drinking, you drinking, Kelly? Uh I'm I'm drinking a kiwi strawberry water. Nice. Low calorie, no sugars Ooh. added. My uh my cranberry juice is dyed ocean spray with one gram of sugar. Because I'm a healthy bitch. Mixing I mean, it with super sugary still, apple there cider. There's still two grams of sugar <laughs> in this, but there's no sugars yeah. added. Yeah, I mean, mine, okay, to be fair, mine could just be one gram of sugar added. I didn't read the bottle very closely. I just grabbed it, and I've almost drank an entire one in 24 hours. So here we are. For shame. No, I'm kidding. Goddamn. Anyway. You get to go first. Oh, crap, I do. Who are you whining about, Emily? All right. Well, uh, by the time this episode comes out, Veterans Day will have come and gone. But at the time of this recording, Veterans Day is tomorrow. And I didn't want to let the occasion pass without a mention. So on theme, I am covering Deborah Sampson. A very, 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 very early American veteran. Ooh, I'm excited. So... Deborah Sampson was born on December 17th in 1760 in Plimpton, Massachusetts. And on behalf of all Americans, I just want to apologize anyone uh, not from the United States who has to confront the word Massachusetts. Yeah, it's a a weird word. It makes no sense. It is needlessly confusing. There are are way too many doublings of letters. It's unnecessary. It's egregious. And it's it's over. The, it's too much. It's entirely too much. So I'm sorry. Also, Deborah's name is spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H. And I just started re-watching 30 Rock. <laughs> Some of which has not aged well. No. <laughs> Some of which is like, oh my God, we're still talking about this. Um, but there's a... Uh, There's a bit where they're watching this reality show and one of the contestants, her name is spelled this way, but they call her Deborah. 
So all during my research, I was like, Deborah, no, it's Deborah. Like, it's not Deborah. Don't, don't do this, yeah, Emily. Right. <laughs> so as was common in the 1700s, she was born at home. In fact, in her grandparents' ancestral home, which still stands today, which is pretty com- impressive considering it's made entirely of wood. Ooh. Like, that shit gets eaten and rained yeah, on and God. So she was named after her mother. Deborah Bradford. I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. Uh, And she was the fourth of six children. And one of her older siblings had been born just a year before. And actually, the largest gap uh, was three years between children. But several of them were born like one year after the other. um, Because there's no such thing as birth control or family planning. So Deborah's family had a unique claim to fame in that she was the great-great-granddaughter of William Bradford on her mother's side, who was the first governor of the Plymouth Colony. Ever heard of it? And on both Hmm. sides, she had ancestors who were Mayflower passengers. And I'm pretty sure there's, I didn't look it up because it seems too bougie for me, but I'm pretty sure there's like a society of like people who are descended from Mayflower. Mayflower society or something. Yeah, and I'm like... Okay, guys, you escaped England because you were even too religious for them. Maybe, like, just let that go. I'm all for celebrating your ancestry, but it just seems so bougie to me. Yeah. Like the daughters of the revolution, or like the daughters of the Confederacy. I'm like, stop. Yes. So we don't know much about Deborah's father, Jonathan Sampson, but what we do know isn't great. The story was that Jonathan had died in a shipwreck. Rack. A shipwreck. It's a rack where you hang all of your decorative ships and you can gaze upon them. No, a (laughs) shipwreck. Uh, But in fact, he actually abandoned the family and moved to Lincoln County, Maine. So dying in a shipwreck was the 18th century version of going out for a pack of cigarettes and And never never coming coming back. Yeah. Yeah. No, honey, I'm I'm going on a boat. I'll I'll definitely be back. I'm oh, just, he died. I'm just going fishing. What yeah, are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Um, in Maine, he had a common law wife named Martha with whom he had two children. So he basically just started a whole other yeah. family. It's like I'm gonna have my second family in Maine. Because uh, why not? Summer in Maine with my second family, uh, and then I'll winter in Massachusetts with my first family. Except I'll never go there. <laughs> just in, kidding. Yeah. In 1770. A man named Jonathan Sampson was indicted for murder in Maine, uh, but the case never actually went to trial. Uh, So because of this, we don't know if it was this, if it was the same one, this Jonathan Sampson or a different Jonathan Sampson, considering I don't think that name was terribly uncommon. Like I'm sure every town had like five Jonathan Sampsons and then they're all moving around. Yeah. Yeah. They're all moving around and they're all trying to find the one village where they're the only Jonathan Sampson because there can only be one. And then they fight it out. And then the loser has to leave and goes to another town where inevitably there's another Jonathan Sampson (laughs) and the the cycle continues. (laughs) Maybe that's what the murder was. He murdered the other Other Jonathan Sampson. (laughs) And the town was just like, no, it's fine. There can only be one. Yeah. They were like, whoa, whoa. You can't just come in and kill a guy. It was the other Jonathan Sampson. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's no, fine. sorry. We're we good. we didn't realize. We thought his name was John Sampson. Um, I didn't realize his full name was Jonathan. That's fine then. <laughs> so regardless of if he murdered anyone, he sounds like he was a real winner. Yeah. 
definitely. So because of her husband's abandonment, Deborah Bradford was left to provide for six children on her own. But because the only financial security a woman could have at the time was being married to a man who worked, she was unable to do so without a husband. So Deborah did what many other women in her situation did at the time and sent her children to live with different families and friends. So the the kids were all split up between different family and friends households to be taken care of because the mother couldn't deal with them. Great. Um, Which like... I'm not shitting on Deborah for this. No, she she that but was it still sucks. No, it it definitely does, and it's not great for the kids. Um, but let's remember this is because women didn't have financial options, Without and her spouses. husband fucking Yay. dip dip potato chipped on her. Yeah. So, uh, Deborah went to live with her mother's relatives, uh, and I, re- I okay. So I read in some places that her mother died shortly after this. But I also read in other places, like later in her life, she was writing to her mother. A lot of this story, I was reading conflicting information. So I kind of, I did my best. If this isn't exactly the story you know, it's because there are 20 versions of this story. Right. Um, but regardless, uh, she was then sent to live with a woman named Mary Prince Thatcher, who was an 80-year-old reverend's widow. Okay. Uh, it's likely that Mary Thatcher taught Deborah to read so that the little girl could read Bible verses to the aging woman. I mean, that's still really sweet, though. It, no, it's it's very sweet. And girls learning to read at the time was not guaranteed and no. uh, actually actively discouraged uh, and a skill reserved for upper class wealthy girls and women if they were you know, taught to read. Well, yeah, if their parents were like, yeah, okay, you can do that. Yeah, if they're like, we actually value education regardless of sex or gender. Uh, so Deborah being literate was a, was a gift. Like, this was a real, uh, this was very it's lucky. A, it was a bonus. Yeah. Plus 10 to Gryffindor. <laughs> she, she added two, two of her points, to, her skill points to intellect. Oh, yeah, yep. 100%. So when Mary Thatcher died in 1771 at the ripe old age of 83, which for the 1700s... That's, that is a ripe old age. That woman had God on her side. <laughs> I'm just saying. That woman was doing... God or the devil, someone was on her side. And she's, like, raising a small child in her 80s? Like, Mary Thatcher... What kind of miracle berry were you sucking on? Because you have the key to vitality in life. Teaching young girls to read. Dude. Oh, my God. No, that is the miracle of life. And once uh, once Deborah became literate, she's like, my job is done and I can finally die. But she lived independently, you know, for like her husband was dead and she just kept doing her thing and even took in a, a perhaps orphaned wayward child right so after mary thatcher uh the living queen died uh deborah was once again sent to live with another family so she moved in with the thomas family of middleborough in plymouth county uh the thomas family had children but did not treat deborah as one of them. So do they treat her like as a servant? Um, Yeah, actually, an indentured servant. The 10 Ugh. or 11-year-old girl worked as an indentured servant until 1778. Uh, Jeremiah Thomas, the patriarch of the family, didn't believe in education for women. He's like, of course, like teaching a pig to read. Why would you do that? Like he sucked. Um, and he only sent his sons to school. However, 
Deborah was clever and learned from the Thomas sons who would share what they'd learned in school and their learning materials with her, which she could read thanks to Mary Thatcher, the woman who wouldn't die until she passed on knowledge to the next generation of strong, badass babes. Right. So in 1778, when Deborah turned 18, she was released from her indentured servitude. uh, And normally her future prospects would only be continuing to be like a servant. Right. Or marrying a man for financial security. You know, because that worked out super well for her mom and a lot of other women. However, because she had been able to educate herself, she was able to begin working as a teacher in the summer and a weaver in the winter. And she proved to be a skilled teacher working for prominent families in the area. And then for housing, she would just live with the family she was working for. That makes me so happy. She's like getting out and doing things. Well, she's getting paid. She has few expenses. She doesn't have to pay rent or a mortgage or for a farm, I don't know, whatever the hell, you know, and she is independent. Well, she she doesn't she's need she's a man to do done. this. Yeah. And in addition, and then she, she was a hustler. In addition to weaving, Deborah did like, she did, so weaving like rug carpet weaving, but she also did basket weaving, made tools like weather vanes, did carpentry by making milking stools and sleds. And to supplement her income, she'd sell what she made door to door. So, like, every day she hustling, hustling. So, Deborah had already proved to be a persistent, strong, and enterprising person who wouldn't let expectations of others limit her. And all these skills would help her in her ultimate undertaking. During this time, the American Revolution was raging, and Deborah, not one to sit back and kick her feet up, wanted to fulfill what she felt was her patriotic duty and fight. But there was one little problem with this plan. The American army had a strict no girls allowed policy. No girls allowed. (laughs) Just like she had in the past with her education, though, Deborah found a way around this silly rule. (laughs) She's like, sexism be damned. I do what I want. Right? She's a badass. So she disguised herself as a man and enlisted. And also, she's a survivor. You know, she's being sent off to different housing institutions. She's not being cared for as a child. She's a in woman a lot who of gets cases. shit done. Yeah, and she, I think she very much understands if anything is going to happen, if anything's going to get better, she has to be the one to orchestrate it. Right. She, no one was going to send her to school. She had to learn off of the boys, you know? So we've talked before about how men in the past literally didn't know what women would or could look like in men's clothes, and that combined uh, with ill-fitting uniforms, helped women pass themselves off as men to join the army. But Deborah had other advantages. And normally we don't like to talk about how a woman looks, but it's actually relevant, if not slightly insulting. So while the average woman in the 1700s was around five feet tall, what's up? I'm average for the 1700s. She was a towering 5'9", which even now is pretty tall for a lady. She was also described by those who knew her as, quote, a person of plain features. Uh, She was also described as having small breasts and a broad, strong frame. So not having traditionally uh, a traditionally feminine appearance helped her to successfully enlist and just really made her, you know, it's like, I just have to put on some man clothes and I'm good. 
So Deborah had been staying in the home of Captain Benjamin Leonard and took the captain's son's clothes. She tied her hair back and taped cotton around her breast before going to the local recruiting office. Friendly health reminder, do not, absolutely do not tape down your breasts with ace bandages or anything like that. You can cause serious and permanent damage to your body. Get a legit binder from a reputable company. They're out there. They can be affordable. Do not fucking use ace bandages, please. Thank you. So Deborah enlisted in the Continental Army as Timothy Thayer. I like that name. I do too. Uh, And was given a signing bonus. Feeling pretty fucking good about herself, she took her enlistment bonus and went to the tavern where she got (laughs) shwasted. It's like not the best idea, but also I get it. Also, you're about to go off to war. I think you're entitled to get a little fucked up. <laughs> it's just super funny. However, like the- I'm pretending to be a man, but I'm still going to go get wasted. I mean, that's the that's the key to the illusion. I would, a woman I would wouldn't just, march into a tavern and just throw a bunch of money down to I get would wasted. Be so afraid that I would just like let something slip when I was drunk. You start flashing everyone. Yeah. Is that not what you do? Um, you know, we don't have to talk about that right now. However, the ruse wouldn't last long, but not because she got wasted. That That's the yeah, weird thing. That's yeah. where I thought this was going. Actually, everything fell apart when she was signing her papers at the recruitment office. Hmm. An elderly woman who had seen her enlist recognized her as Deborah by the awkward way she held the quill to sign the enlistment papers. When Deborah was younger, she had been in some kind of accident, which caused her to lose most of the use of her forefinger. And this caused her to hold a quill in a very distinct way. It was just one of those things where it's like, and you know, these are small villages and like you can be recognized by your fucked up finger. (laughs) So the woman reported her, boo. And uh, Deborah was forced to return what remained of the signing bonus because she'd already spent a bunch getting wasted, which now feels like a really good idea. Yeah, right? Like, might as well spend that shit. Uh, but she otherwise wasn't reprimanded and was just told, like, please don't do this again. Like, don't, don't fucking even. Um, Deborah didn't listen. Good. She once again donned her disguise and enlisted. I hope she went to, like, a different town, just in case that old lady was still there. Yeah, so this time she enlisted as Robert Shirtliff in Uxbridge, Uxbridge probably saying that wrong massachusetts i I, I prefer the other name tomothy thayer yeah see i like robert shirtlift because it's like if she just lifts her shirt you see her tatas like i don't know it feels like she's kind of like poking the bear it's like kathy williams who is like my name is william kathy and i'm like yeah jesus christ you didn't even try it's like she thought all of it through. Someone asked her her name and, and she's she like, panicked. I knew I forgot something. She's like, William Kathy. And they're like, fine. They're like, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Deborah got found out because she had a weird finger. Kathy Williams got to reverse her name and no one gave a shit. <laughs> no one noticed. Anyway. Um, so she enlisted with the 4th Massachusetts Regiment's Light Infantry Company. And she was one of like 50 to 60 soldiers commanded by Captain George Webb. And like all other soldiers, her service would be for three years or for the duration of the war, whichever came first. 
Hmm. Which like now we're, we're very much accustomed to like year long tours. And even that I'm like, that's a, that's a huge commitment. That's a long time. You know, especially if you're serving abroad away from your family, Oh yeah, like, but yeah, no, three years. Or until the war ends. Which I would expect the three years to come up first, to be honest. Yeah, in a in a war like this. Yeah. yeah. So it's rather remarkable that Deborah was able to enlist with a light infantry company. The soldiers chosen for this elite unit were larger, taller, and stronger than the average soldier because their job was to provide rapid coverage for advancing forces, rear guard, which was like you know, watching the six yep. and conduct reconnaissance missions. So they were I mean, kind of like tall. special ops. No, I know, but it's, it's just interesting. Yeah, but, no, I just, I think it's funny. Cause there's this whole like women just physically aren't capable. And like without even trying, they're like, Ooh, you got the build. You're in this elite right. unit. Um, and this also meant that they were likely to engage in battles. So, like these people had to be big and tough. The elite staffs of Deborah's company served as additional camouflage because no one would expect a woman to be chosen for the light infantry company. Like no one was on the lookout. Like it, it's hiding in plain sight. It's almost audacious. So this is probably why when the other soldiers noticed that she couldn't grow a beard, they thought it was because she was too young and called her smock face or Molly. <laughs> But they didn't suspect she was a woman, so it was fine. (laughs) To further conceal her womanliness, she used the bathroom only under the cover of night. Sexy night peeing. Which honestly, like, I love using a bathroom when no one else is around. I get it. So Deborah saw a battle for the first time on July 3rd, 1782 in Terryton, or Terrytown, don't know, New York. During the battle, she suffered... Two musket balls to her thigh and was cut on her forehead. And like a forehead wound doesn't seem like a big deal, but head wounds bleed like a bastard. So I'm just imagining her face is covered in blood. She's got these two little musket balls lodged in her thigh. Like, ew. And that that shit's not like. Emily's like, ew. And I'm like, sanitary. Have you ever seen like the old musket balls? Like, they're creepy. I don't know. They, I'm just like, ew, it's, it's too big. It's too round and bumpy, and I hate it. And that shouldn't be in anyone's body. Yeah, no, I agree. So when her comrades insisted she should go to the doctor for her injury, she refused, afraid that she'd be discovered. And to their credit, her comrades didn't just let her, like, man up about it. And they forced her onto a horse and rode her to a doctor. They're like, hey, bro. Physical health is incredibly important and you need to take care of yourself. So get on this fucking horse and go to the doctor. They're like, well, we're putting you on the fucking horse. (laughs) So the doctor treated Deborah's head wound first, then left the tent for, I don't know, whatever reason. Uh, To avoid being discovered, she took a pen knife and a sewing needle and dug out one of the musket balls herself from her own leg. Oh my God. Oh, I hate it. The other I hate everything about it. Yeah, she would have dug out the second one, uh, but it was embedded too deeply into her leg for her to like actually get it out. So instead of risking her identity being revealed, she snuck out of the doctor's tent, and the musket ball would remain in her leg for the rest of her life, and it never fully healed. And actually, some speculate uh, it hastened her death. 
in the end. Like, Aww. like it was, it was an ongoing injury that she never fully recovered from. When Deborah's uh, disappearance, or no wait, when Deborah's disappear, when Deborah, oh sorry, <laughs> when Deborah quote unquote disappeared, her family suspected that she had enlisted again because she'd done this before. And they went to camps looking for her. And Deborah was able to avoid them even when they arrived arrived at her camp. And she tried to calm them by writing that she had found agreeable work in a large but well-regulated family. Which I'm like, that's hilarious. Like, how do you say you're in the army without saying you're in the army? You're working in a large but well-regulated family. Like, just, just tell them you're in the army, Deborah. Despite this, the town of Middleborough was convinced that she had gone astray and she was actually excommunicated from the First Baptist Church in Middleborough. <laughs> and the church... Wow. Okay, there is a document and the church declared and just... Okay, I just want to point out there's a lot of really weird spellings and apostrophes in this. Um, so if I stumble, it's because none of what's actually written makes sense. The church considered the case of Deborah Sampson, a member of this church who last spring was accused of dressing in men's clothes and enlisting as a soldier in the army. And although she was not convicted, yet was strongly suspected of being guilty and for some time before behaved very loosely and unchristian-like and at the last left our parts in a sudden manner and it is not known among us where she has gone and at Jesus Christ I didn't realize this was one sentence I like that they're like she ran away and might have acted like a man so she can't be part of our well they're just like adding it like and 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 after considerable discourse it appeared that at several be brethren had labored with her before she went away without obtaining satisfaction concluded it is in the church's duty wait 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 go back what Something about labor without sex. Are they talking about they had sex and the guys didn't come? It appeared that as several brethren had labored with her before she went away without obtaining sex. Oh, dude, I don't know. Are they talking about like she had sex with people and they didn't come and so now the church is mad at her? Oh, shit, I don't know. (laughs) Like that's how I interpret that sentence. I might be wrong. Um... Yeah, either she worked for people and they weren't happy with her work or she worked for people and they weren't happy with her work. Uh, uh. I don't know. Regardless of what that oddly sexual sentence from the church means, um, it is in the church's duty to withdraw fellowship until she returns and makes Christian satisfaction. Satisfaction. What is Christian satisfaction? Um, I think mean? she needs to beg for forgiveness. Like she needs to to repent and atone and basically adhere to what the church feels is a good Christian woman. Jesus Christ. Um. Yeah. Satisfaction. So get married, have a bunch of kids is too sexually charged of a word to be used in any of this context, and I hate it. So Deborah continued her service despite being excommunicated from this tiny church in bumfuck, Massachusetts, carrying on a scouting mission to spy on British soldiers gathering in Manhattan so General George Washington could determine whether or not to attack. 
In another mission, she and two sergeants led 30 infantrymen on an expedition. Uh, they were ambushed by British loyalists who fought them. She also led a raid on a British loyalist home, which led to the capture of 15 men. So she's like in the shit. Right? And she's that's doing so it. so much cooler than being a part of the church. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying. So Deborah was even at the notable Battle of Yorktown, which is which is considered Ooh. to be the final battle that sealed the victory for the Americans. During the battle, she dug trenches, stormed a British fortification, and endured cannon fire. Again, she is in the shit. Though the war was considered over, over was like in finger quotes because there wasn't an official peace treaty, so the Continental Army remained active. And this put a huge strain on an already used and abused military. Soldiers had endured horrific conditions, bitter cold, frostbite, starvation, yeah. thirst, and diseases galore. And that is not even counting just the horrors that come with war. You're injured. Your, you're, you know, friends are dying. You're watching them die. Like, it's rough. And on top of all of that, they weren't being compensated as promised. And I think I've talked about this before, um, there, there was a big deal during and after the American revolution of soldiers and veterans not being compensated. And it's like, yeah. wow, this practice goes back to the original. Like we've been doing this for fucking ever. Awesome. Great. I hate it. So this combined with the Schrodinger's cat of the war being over, but not over, but it's over, but not really led to rebellion. Cause then these people couldn't get discharged either and go back to their lives. Even though the war was over, they were still forced to serve if their three years weren't up because technically the war wasn't over. So George Washington sent soldiers to Philadelphia to quash one such uprising. And Deborah was in the company of soldiers quelling that rebellion and that same summer, Deborah became deathly ill in Philadelphia. Oh, no. Yeah. Although I'm also like, hey, hey, these soldiers just fought for this country to get out from British rule and you can't bother to fucking pay them. Let them rage. Like, that's bullshit. Right. So she was too sick to resist going to a doctor and she was seen by Dr. Barnabas Binney. Great name. Can we bring back Barnabas as a name? I thought you were talking about Benny. Benny, too. I'd name a cat Benny. I'd name a dog Benny, too. So Dr. Benny put his hand in her uh, shirt to feel her heartbeat and, deter and to determine if she was alive or not, because she was that sick, where he's like, Wow. Italy, I can't actually, tell. Well, she's alive right now, which is good for him, because it was actually very difficult to tell if someone was alive or dead, which uh, we found out when I talked about being buried alive. Yeah. Mm. Um, as Deborah would later write, quote, thrusting his hand into my bosom to ascertain if there were motion at the heart, he was surprised at finding an inner vest tightly compressing my breasts, the instant removal of which not only ascertained the fact of life, but disclosed that I was in fact, disclosed the fact I was a woman. So instead of turning her in, Dr. Binney brought Deborah to his home to care for her in private and agreed to keep her secrets. Hey. Yeah. Deborah continued her military service, staving off illness, violence, and admirers. I assume, really fe I assume female baby. admirers because she's acting like a man, right? Hold back this feeling for so long. Yeah, so while in Baltimore, a 17-year-old girl began trying to court Robert, 
and showered him with gifts of shirts and money. That's weird. Like Spanish money and and linen shirts. Yeah, and but you, it's very rare to hear like the women to court the men. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean. Maybe it's different when they're soldiers. Here's the other thing. She's 17. She's already like her ovaries are starting to dry up. She's got to get serious about finding a man. Uh, so Deborah wasn't super sure how to respond to this interaction and actually played into the courtship to avoid suspicion. Because if she didn't, she was worried everyone would be like, dude, what, like, what's wrong with you? You're not into that? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? So once Deborah left Baltimore, she wrote the woman to let her down and signed the letter as, quote, your own sex. <laughs> Which, I don't know. I, I would probably just keep lying to her. Like, I'm really sorry. Like, I just. I don't know when I'm coming back, honey. I'm not in a place in my life where I'm ready for a serious relationship right now. You know, I just, I'm just getting done with this war. I've got this musket ball in my leg that refuses to heal. I'm just not in a place right now where I can make a commitment. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd reveal myself because I'm like women, women scorned. Yeah. No thanks. I'd be way too nervous that she was going to tell someone. So when the war officially ended with the signing of the Peace of Paris on September 3rd, 1783, Deborah traveled to West Point to be officially discharged. However, Dr. Binney, Barnabas Binney, the bastard, was beginning to have second thoughts on keeping Deborah's secret and reported her to General Henry Knox, who was the commander at West Point. I know. He was such a nice dude. I know. And I like part of me gets it because he's like, well, it's it's my duty to report like shammery or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, dude, just you let it go this long. Just shut the fuck up. Just just stop. So General Henry Knox, likely thankful for Deborah's service and thankful that the war was over, gave Deborah an honorable discharge but she was not fully compensated for her service. So basically they're like, here's a little money, no harm, no foul, get out. You know, like the war is over. We're, we're like, I don't have time to deal with this. Just go. So when Deborah parade in front of her fellow soldiers, now dressed as a woman, not a single one of them recognized her. Which like they keep describing her as like so mannish. And I'm like, Okay, was she though, or was she just not so overtly feminine, like that people notice? Exact, yeah. where like she could she could cross dress well, like I don't know. So uh, in her post war life, Deborah Deborah settled onto a farm and likely enjoying the freedom that dressing as a man allowed her. She still donned the clothes of Robert Shirtlift from time to time. However, she would go back to presenting as a woman full-time and married a man named Benjamin Gannett, uh, with whom she would have four children, one of whom was adopted. And I love that because she kept getting passed around throughout her childhood. And she's like, no, baby, you're home. Aww. This is your home now. I'm not going to pass you off. Now, granted, Mary Thatcher died. She was 83. That wasn't really her fault. But maybe don't give the child to an 80-year-old to an woman. Anyway, uh, post-war life wasn't easy, though. The farmland had been overworked and the house was run down, and so it was really hard for them to make a living off of this land. In January of 1792, uh, Deborah petitioned Massachusetts for the payment that she was denied for her military service based solely on the fact that she was a woman. It actually worked 
which is not what I was expecting. And her petition was signed by then Governor John Hancock. Yes, that John Hancock. The one you're thinking of. She was awarded 34 pounds plus back pay for her 1783 discharge, which I'm like, wow, good on them. Yeah, that's that's actually a really decent chunk of money. Literally the least they can do. Um, Didn't expect that to work at all, though. During her lifetime, Herman Mann, who knew her, published a biography about her in 1797 called The Female Review, Life of Deborah, Deborah Sampson, the Female Soldier in the War of Revolution. And this brought Deborah public notoriety. Everyone was like, what? Women in war? And they actually did well? So in the early 1800s, Deborah leveraged this notoriety. And when I lecture to her, during what she would talk about, this is weird to me, and I can't tell if she's being sarcastic, but she would talk about the values of like traditional gender roles for women. She'd be like, it's so good for women to act like women. But then she would change into a military uniform and start performing a physically difficult military drill. So I'm not sure if she's like, yeah, women can't do this stuff. Just kidding. We totally can. Dun, 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 dun. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. This earned her money to help support her family and also help to justify to the public uh, her service and that she was worthy of serving with the Continental Army. Like, I didn't... I didn't duck back and just collect my paycheck. Like I was, I was doing this and women can do this. And I in particular can do this. Despite all this, uh, Deborah and her husband still struggled to support the family. And she often wrote to her friend, Paul Revere to borrow money. Yes. That Paul Revere, (laughs) like that. That uh, rode his horse, Paul Revere. Uh, I mean, he's no Sybil Luddington, but who knows? No, is? not at all. Uh, Revere also petitioned the government to grant her a pension for the wounds that she sustained in battle. He wrote, quote, I have been induced to inquire her situation and character since she quit the male habit. I love male habit. Male habit. <laughs> and soldier's uniform. For the more decent apparel of her own gender, humanity and justice obliges me to say that every person with whom I have conversed about her, and it is not a few, speak of her as a woman with handsome talents, good morals, a dutiful wife, and an affectionate parent. So basically, he's like... He's kind of saying, like, hey, she's kind of stepped back in line now. Like, she's... Right, like, she's okay. She's dressing as a woman. She's being a good wife. Also, like, she deserves this, you know? Which, like, obviously, nowadays, I don't agree with that tact. But I understand it for the time. The request was actually approved on March 11th, 1805. And Deborah was entitled to receive $4 a month in disability payments. However, that was not enough to support her. Disability payments rarely are. And in 1809, she petitioned Congress to give her back pay dating to her Fuck discharge, yeah. which nowadays, if you get approved for disability or your disability rating gets increased, you get back pay. And they usually don't do it from when the disability was first reported, but like usually to the last time you were denied or the last time you tried to, you know, get it or whatever. So that's interesting. This would have give uh but, but, but. so this would have given her $960 which at the time a shit ton of money. 
though it was initially denied, it was eventually approved in 1816, and Deborah could finally make enough money to repay loans, support her family, and make improvements to the family farm. So, like, live a respectable and productive civilian right. life that she fought for and should have been compensated for fighting for. Like, she's not asking for the sun and the moon and the stars. Like, she's just asking to get what everyone else was also entitled to. Right. Like, she's like, I realize I signed up under false pretenses, but I still did the thing and you still owe me. Yeah. And you still loved my work. Like, just saying. So Deborah Sampson died on April 28th, 1827 of yellow fever and was interred at Rock Ridge Cemetery in Sharon, Massachusetts. Stupid diseases. (sighs) Okay. She beat a lot. That's true. But that was one of the reasons they they suggested that the bullet wound, like the musket shell, whatever, musket ball, it's not even a bullet. It's a little metal ball um, exacerbated her condition because it just was this permanent injury that never fully healed. Her body is constantly fighting against it. It definitely didn't help. In honor of her service and her feminine trailblazing, Deborah has been honored with a statue in front of the Sharon, Massachusetts Library. Her farmhouse and surrounding land are protected to preserve it as a historic site. And in World War II, the Liberty ship SS Deborah Gannett was named after her. So, like, she's getting recognized well into World War II. That's amazing. She has also been portrayed in plays, books, and media, including on Drunk History, where Paget Brewster told her story. Yep. And Mel Streep even named Deborah during her 2006 speech at the Democratic National Convention while listing women who made history. like i don't know can you imagine meryl streep naming you in a speech even if it was for something bad i'd probably be like oh my god meryl streep knows who i am right my name graced her lips fuck so most recently beth anderson published her book cloaked in courage deborah sampson patriot soldier in 2022 so just this year uh which i must now read and i'm going to go to audible immediately after and find it and download it and i want to end this with a quote from the independent gazette that was published on january 10th 1784 which described Deborah and her military services and how she was regarded by her fellow servicemen quote She was a remarkable, vigilant soldier on her post and always gained the admiration and applause of her officers. And that is the story of Deborah Sampson and the Female Review. (laughs) I just thought that was such a weird book. The Female Review. It's like, that sounds like a magazine. (laughs) But okay, whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I thought that was kind of a cool story. And like... The, 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 you know, the trope of a woman dressing up as a man to serve in the military, like, it almost feels cliche because for such a long time, that was the only way a woman could serve in the military. Yeah, like, it might be cliche, but, but that's it happened. the only option there like, was. Like, we're not making this up to do, like, a Mulan fictional spinoff. Like, these women actually did this yeah. because they felt compelled. And they deserve the right to serve just like anyone else does. Loving your country and fighting for your country does not have to be drawn. Like, it's not sexist. Women can want to do it, too. I'm not one of them, but Godspeed to those who are. Like, it's not easy. 
but yeah, that's my uh, special Veterans Veterans Day story. And thank you to all the veterans out there for your service yeah, and we for your continued you. for your continued strength. And to all the veterans that we've lost, we see you, and we will put out a plate with a with salt and a lime for you. And a rose, I think that's part of it. I think so. I think it's a yeah. salt and lime and a rose. Yeah. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to, or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. I did not do a veteran. I kind of feel bad. Well, yours is still appropriate, which is actually why I was going to cover her. And then I I was like, oh, wait, Veterans Day. I think it's just because I was like, oh, like, I, I'm aware that it's Veterans Day, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. My brain was just like, yeah, we're, it's fine. It's like, that's tomorrow. Yep. I don't have to work. That's okay. I do the same thing. But it's also November, which means it is Native American Heritage Month. Boom, bow, bow, bow. So that is the theme I went with. Which is why Emily and I almost collided. Yeah, it was actually, like, truly, there was something going on where the universe was like, they're so close to fucking this up. I gotta do something. Right. Then the universe was like, put this thought in Emily's head. Yeah. So I'm covering Annie Dodge Waneka. Yay. I can actually say I've heard of her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Emily may jump in more than normal if I forget something or fuck something up. I might just have more to discuss because there were parts of her story where I was like, I feel like this is what's going on or I feel like this is how I can interpret the situation. But so Annie was born in 1910 and is part of the the cliff dwelling people. And Emily can attest to this that I like they like all the sources I found like list the not the Navajo spelling of it Mm -hmm. could not find a pronunciation yeah, no. Um, the closest she was getting was Kanikanik and which Tchaikovsky. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm like, I'm like, are you just putting words that are hard to pronounce? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it was basically Google was like, we don't know how to deal with this, so here are a bunch of words that people commonly look up. Right, and so she was born into the cliff the cliff dwelling people clan of the Navajo in a traditional Navajo hogan, which is like their style of hut, which is pretty neat. Um. 
So her father was Henry Chi Dodge, and he is also um, he. Her father was like he, so. Her grandfather was like a a tradesman, a white tradesman with a Navajo woman, and that's her father was the product of that relationship. Yep. Uh, I didn't do a ton of deep diving into her father, but her father was a very important man. He was one of the wealthiest men of the Navajo tribe. He was actually the last head chief of the Navajo, but the reason I'm not going to get too heavy into that is because it was actually not a Navajo-recognized position. That was a American-given position. Oh, so he was like the American rep. Yeah. Okay. Um, he was one of the first uh, leaders of the Navajo uh, tribe like council though which is a bigger that's actually like Navajo based yes. so that is a bigger thing but he was also one of the wealthiest member and her mother was his third partner uh, Kihaba which might be the incorrect pronunciation again I could not find one um, her Americanized name was Mary Shirley Bigaye um, and this was also potentially not a, like a love match or even a relationship. There was a few different versions I heard of this, but basically it kind of sounded like she was forced to live with this guy and then they had children. So yeah, it, take that relationship as you will. It, it felt really weird and it felt like they were trying to say something without saying something. Oh, 100%. But that's it's like, it like, and like, that's why I'm like, I'm reporting it as I read it. Yeah. There were sources that are like, she was forced to live with this guy but they don't refer to her as his wife, just her his partner. Yep. Um, and she was constantly leaving. Yeah. Like any chance she, she could she, get, she'd like then, dip out. Well, and then once he got like elected to the council, that her dad was always traveling. So like it it was it it was clearly a very odd relationship. Yeah. Um. So at the age of five, Annie began helping her father herd various animals. He owned a lot of ranches. This included horses, donkeys, and goats. And then in the summers, Annie would often visit her mother who herded sheep. So she grew up in a very like ranch, pro-ranch family. Yeah, lots um, of animals. On both sides. Um, So her mother was from Deer Spring and that's where her mother like would often go to and then ended up living. Um, And and as far as we know, Annie had a half sister and five half brothers that lived with her mother. Mm Mm-hmm. So it sounds like her mother, since they were half siblings, it sounds like her mother maybe was partnered or married I to hope someone she else. Found someone she loved. I hope so too. Um, and the descendants of her half siblings still live in Deer Spring. They can like actually trace their ancestry back. So that, I, I included that because I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's the other thing. I'm sure her dad is producing children on his own too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but we know at least they're still in the same area, yes. which is cool. So while taught, obviously taught a lot of Navajo history and culture because of who her father was, Annie also gained a general education as much as the Native Americans could at the time, which meant she went to a government-run school located on the reservation, which we've talked about those schools before. I wish everyone could, like, see the face that Kelly made when she's like, she got an education, but it was a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. It Um, was bad. We covered that in one of our other episodes. I actually have it written down. So uh, when I covered Zikala Shaw in episode 39, I get more into the... 
they, they were called schools. Indian boarding schools yep. or Indian schools. Or um, government-run schools. Yeah. As I chose the slightly more politically correct. Yeah, but basically the whole point was uh, to erase Native culture from these children, uh, force them to assimilate to European right. standards while also keeping them subservient. They right. weren't meant to go on to college and, like, have careers. They were meant to do, you know, basic labor. Right, which is why I love, like, Annie's getting that in, other cultural yeah. because of who her father is. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but still, like, you, well, you need to fit into European society, but you can't be on the same level as us. You right. know, you just can't be as different as you are now. Like right. it, it was super, it was super shitty and there was abuse. A lot of children died of illness, neglect, um, other abuses. Uh, there are a lot There's of children. There's a lot of issues. There are a lot of children. Schools. Like parents don't know what happened to their children. And actually I, uh, when I went to Colorado, they had a, a, an exhibit in the history museum about the indigenous tribes. Oh. And there was one, uh, that was talking about the Indian boarding schools, and be intense. it was it was rough. I was reading this account where uh, these I don't remember if they were Navajo or what the what the tribe was, uh, but there were these mothers that were fo- like forced to send their kids to these from Colorado to New Mexico to a school there, and it was like eleven children went. And 10 of them didn't come back. Yeah, I was going to say. And the mothers lost their fucking shit because they're like, because okay, no one told we them have anything. To their kids our... just didn't come back. Yeah, well, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you're telling me I have to send my kid like two states away and then this is what happened? So there was, um, yeah. I think they fought against that and at the very least to have schools that were closer so they say, could keep and, an eye and on And this their might kids. have been after that because this one was on the reservation. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so she's attending government-run school on a reservation, and a tragic, more tragic event occurred that would shape the rest of her life. So this is during a time, well, first of all, back to America, This uh, these schools Americanizing the Indian children. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Annie Dodge is a very Americanized name, but literally, in all of the articles I found, her Navajo name is not mentioned. And even Wikipedia just says, a.k.a., in brackets, Navajo name. Yeah. Like, so... We've so all- I'm super frustrated because I looked through a good 10 to 15 articles, which I know that is not super extensive, but we're on limited time. And I literally even go- like tried to Google Annie Dodge, Navajo name or like Navajo. Mm-hmm. Like I tried all these different versions of trying to find her Navajo name and I could not. I think like obviously it, it, it's sad and disrespectful and is, you know, symptomatic of like our larger erasure of you know indigenous and navajo people but i think is it's also the funniest fucking thing i've ever read on wikipedia where like annie dodge aka brackets navajo name i'm like oh my god okay we've all done that though on a paper where we were like i'm gonna put something in here later and then you don't and it's still just the bracket part of me wonders is because because of who her father was and that he he was descendant from a mixed race family like maybe she didn't have a Navajo name maybe she was given an Americanized name right off the bat well and like Zikala Shaw that was a name that she gave herself later in life her uh her birth name was like Gertrude Bonin yeah because it was very common to help 
kids exactly. fit in better. Because when you realize that the world around you is being taken over by an entirely new culture, you're forced to choose to either hang on to your culture or like maybe right. try to help your kids succeed in this ever this new world. And it's a really tough thing to do. And I really can't, I mean, right. I can't fault anyone for anything. So she may or may not have had a Navajo name, but I thought I'd just throw that in there. That I hope it if, was actually if there is a Navajo AKA name out Navajo there, name. I can't find it. I hope that was her right. name. Annie Dodge, also known as Navajo name. <laughs> like, right. what? No. Okay, so back to tragic events occurring. So during Annie's childhood, this was when the Spanish influenza was beginning to claim lives of millions of people around the world. It's difficult due to shitty record keeping of the time to know exactly the number of losses worldwide, but the CDC estimates about 50 million. And the other worldwide. Yeah. And the other tough thing about it and the reason it's called the Spanish influenza is because countries are not reporting on cases because this is during World War One and no one wanted to seem weak. Exactly. But because Spain was not engaged in World War One, they had their own other thing going Spain on. Spain was like, we have this issue, guys. They're like, hey, does anyone else have this going on? And then everyone just started calling it the Spanish flu. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was the great pandemic of 1918. Right. Where people fought against wearing masks and died at record rates. And thank Shocking. God that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so obviously fear and panic consumed people around the world. And sadly, eventually the Spanish influenza came to America and to Annie's community. Um, so when this, this epidemic struck Thousands of Navajos, including many of Annie's classmates, died. Annie was eight at this time, and she managed to escape with uh, escape with only getting a mild case of influenza that left her actually resistant to the disease. So she was able to start caring for those other kids that were too sick to feed themselves because she was able to be around them and not get sick. And she's eight. And she's eight in this government-run boarding school on the reservation. My so my friend's daughter, who I who I took care of while her little brother was being born. Now I I, I gave her those coupons, so we have an outing once a month. She's eight, right? And I love her, and she's a very intelligent, caring child. But I would not trust her to be a tiny nurse. Absolutely not. You're eight. Yep. That's absurd. You believe in Santa. What is <laughs> happening? So Annie survived the Spanish influenza, but that is not the only epidemic that Annie would survive. During her fourth grade year, uh, she would, at the school she was in, she, they would suffer an outbreak of trachoma. Gross. Um, and that would strike not just her school, but the whole Fort Defiance area where they were living. And... This outbreak may, uh, got a lot of students, including Annie, sent to the nearby St. Michael's Catholic Mission, kind of as a safe haven, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised they bothered moving them. Right. Which I, I kind of wonder if it's the survivors. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're like, oh, we need to clean things up. Please go away. Well, now I don't know if you get into this, but trachoma is no joke because no, it can leave I, I you did not. blind. Like yeah, it, it, it's a bacteria is... that affects the eyes and it can ruin your, it can destroy your sight. So, yeah, it's a disease of the eye caused by a bacteria. Yeah. And terrible things happen. Yeah. And yeah, it leads to blindness because you basically get so much scarring 
on your eyelid and like around your eye that you don't get to see anymore. It's it's yeah. pretty terrible. Any any condition that affects the eye freaks me out. I yeah. had a sty and I was like, oh, like I, I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Have to give myself eye drops is a night. I hate it so much. I'm terrible at it because I'm always like, uh, 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 and then like I pour me. it on my cheek yeah. instead because I'm like, no. So she finished her fourth fourth grade and fifth grade years at the St. Michael's Catholic Mission. And then at beginning in sixth grade, she would attend the Albuquerque Indian School in New Mexico. So she did get shipped off to yep. New Mexico. Yep. Which is why I thought of that story when I was yep. researching because I was like, oh, God. Um, she would not be one of the kids that would not return. She would actually attend uh, Albuquerque Indian School all the way up until 11th grade. And then I think that's when they graduated. I don't think she, I think they just didn't have a 12th grade. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Uh, because she did graduate, and after graduation, she married a man that she had met during her schooling named George Waneka. Um, and Annie and George would then con- start traveling with her father, and unfortunately that meant she would observe all of the poverty and disease that plagued her nation. Yep. And most of the Indian nations. Probably all of the Indian nations. But yeah. she was Navajo, so that's what she saw. This got her interested in studying public health and then realized that the best way to change the standards of health and the treatment that her people were getting and the sanitation, because that's the other thing in a lot of these reservations, they didn't have the means of sanitation to keep these diseases at bay. Yeah. So she was like, Hey, if I'm going to change this, I need to do it from within. Like this isn't just a, we're stuck on these reservations problem. It is we're stuck on these reservations and we don't know how to help ourselves. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's kind of like with uh, Deborah. It's like, hey, the the government is not helping us, and they're very content to sit back and watch us die. So if we if something's going to change, it ha- we have to do it. Yep. Which is not fair, but unfortunately, that was the reality of the situation. Right. So Annie would work to gain and get elected to the to the tribal council in 1951 she's the second woman ever to be elected to the tribal council and obviously this was not a like oh her dad's part of the tribal council and she got elected yeah i think by 1951 her dad had passed away let me double check i should have written that down but this wasn't like what nepotism this isn't yeah. nepotism that she's people are just like oh we're gonna hire you yeah no her dad wasn't in office anymore this isn't um, he was also dead this isn't like a certain president hiring his entire family to uh hold high appointments in his yeah exactly office so yeah her father had died in 1947 so it's not nepotism I just wanted to double check. But I knew it wasn't anyways, but I was just like, just in case someone says something. Yeah, she's not little Ivanka. Right. So, obviously, when she got elected, Annie just went straight for healthcare. And she became the foremost healthcare advocate for the Navajo people and within the tribal council. And they actually, the tribal council actually um, drafted her to lead their fight against um, the tuberculosis epidemic that came to the rest. They just keep getting hit. Um, to the reservation. She, at the time, she was the second second woman ever elected, but at the time, she was the only woman on the council. Mm-hmm. Um, and her colleagues believed that she was the legal, legal, logical person. <laughs> Logical-ical. Uh, she was the logical person for undertaking such an enormous task because she had both surviving two epidemics and all this like learning under her belt. 
So mm-hmm. early in the process, Annie identified the need for cross-culture coordination of care offered by medicine men, government ph- physicians, and the group of volunteers of doctors that would come and offer their services, as well as these new drugs that were getting developed that weren't always making it to these reservations. So she's like, guys, we can't live our own separate lives. Like there needs to be coordination between our government, the act, like the acting American government, our medicine men, doctors from outside of our tribe and all of these things like we can't exist in a bubble exactly and you can't not help like you know like like not neither of our communities can exist in a bubble and we need to work together right so when she began her work to try and figure out both what they needed and to educate the Navajo people, there was approximately 69,000 Navajo people at the time, many of which lived scattered throughout rural regions that lacked utilities and improved roads. And so she realized like, shit, I have so much to do and there's no easy way to get to these people. So after studying months, or (laughs) studying four months, the different diseases and treatments, particularly tuberculosis, she found herself just driving across the reservation and cities and going from Hogan to Hogan, sleeping wherever she found herself, probably mostly in her car, and continuing her work during the day to try and reach as many of these 69,000 Navajo that she could. Well, and I think that's a good a good point to bring up, that it's not just like like this is a multifaceted problem it's a lack of resources a lack of infrastructure a lack of you know cooperation between you know the government and the reservations it's a lack of education it's a lack of giving a shit like this isn't something that you can just tackle from one angle and I think that's something that we forget in a lot of modern day issues because we're like well how do we fix this it's like there's not just one way there are a lot of things that we have to do not only to address what's happening right now, but to also help it get better in the future. Right. You know? So she, across her trips, she developed a method of educating the Navajo patients that respected their traditional beliefs and customs while clearly answering their questions and working to alleviate their distrust of Western medicine. One of the things she actually did was come up with a uh, Navajo English dictionary for medical terms and procedures and all of these different things that hadn't had a Navajo translation. And so she like made this dictionary so she could explain to people like, hey, this is what's going on. That definitely had a, had her Navajo name in it. Yes. 100%. And how to pronounce quiff, cliff, quiff, cliff dwelling yeah, in Navajo. Exactly. She fucking knew. Well, and you know, th- think about it that way too. Like, okay, the, the U.S. government is kind of like fucked you over generationally over and over I would also be hesitant to trust what they're saying like as far as medicine goes like I can't trust you but then also if you're having a hard time understanding them like that language barrier is detrimental to education and care yeah that's why Mayo employs so many translators to help make sure that patients understand what the doctor is saying and what is going on right so the Indian Health Service or an Indian Health Service physician named Carl 
Carl Hammerschlag, which is a great last name, um, actually called Annie, quote, a boundary person, a bridge person, one of those rare individuals who can stand between two different cultures and help them bridge their differences, end quote. Because that's definitely what Annie was doing. I love that. So while she was explaining everything, helping these Navajo people understand, she would also explain concepts such as germs, Mm -hmm. what tuberculosis was, x-rays, drugs, hospitals, and convalescence. Because... In a lot of Native American culture, the idea of just resting for your health was not really a thing. In a lot of cultures, not even just Native American cultures, but resting for your health wasn't a thing. It is a thing now. It was not a thing before. So convalescence, like, that was a concept that had to be explained to people. She would also use these visits to kind of look at their living conditions and what each of these villages were like and what they had to offer their their residents. What resources that they were working with. So all of this field research actually led her to be able to develop other programs for the Navajo Nation and design things to improve her health care, such as housing, sanitation, water quality, nutrition, pregnancy and infant care, as well as ear and eye conditions. So like she's teaching them all these things, but she's also using it to be like, oh, you need a new well or, oh, you need access to this. Like, oh, here's one of the sources of this issue, contaminated water. You know, let's address that, and then people aren't going to get this all the time. Right. She also got a view at uh, how when whether or not areas were vaccinated and how high their alcoholism rates were, Mm -hmm. because that is a big problem in the Native communities. She became an innovator of methods to instruct people about achieving better health, including a weekly radio presentation or program that she did in Navajo. She's an early podcaster. Yeah, she's 100% an early health She would have been, oh my God, I would have loved to interview her. She would also produce films and other teaching tools, again, in Navajo, including the Navajo English Dictionary previously mentioned. And she would also organize what she called baby contests. But we're at, that what she actually used them for were opportunities for medical screening of babies. Aww. It's like, let me look how cute and healthy your baby is. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God, your baby's so cute and healthy. Thank God. (laughs) So one of the, so uh, the Arizona Republic, which I think was in magazine said, quote, she was the guardian of her people to save them. She had to convince them they needed modern medicine, a nearly impossible task in the mid 20th century, which is true. Well, and when you think about it, like the idea of her being a, you know, a bridge person, as that one quote put it, she is in the perfect position to do that because not only does she have the formal education to understand, you know, public health and wellness, but she also has the cultural background, understanding and respect to communicate with the people of her nation without it being like this white savior bullshit or talking down to them or not understanding their issues. Like she really is the perfect person for this. Right. So not only was Annie traveling around her own nation, the Navajo nation, but she was actually fighting for them politically as well. And she became a huge, uh, like governmental leader of her, her nation. So again, this is a time where American women, let alone like not even discussing native women, but American women rarely held national political offices. Yeah. Yeah. During this time where Annie's out doing all these things, the U.S. Congress included one female senator and only 10 female representatives. 
So th- this is what she's dealing with. Yeah. And few nationally elected women office holders um, at the time actually like were like lasted in office or had any sort of achievement. Annie, on the other hand, was doing all of the things she made dozens of trips to Washington DC where she would view, where she was viewed as a respected representative of the Native American interests and she often conferred with presidents, members of Congress and head of heads of government agencies. Good god. Yep. I mean, like like for someone with her background, her experience and intimate understanding of the Navajo Nation and what indigenous people need for her to be in that position to talk with the people who can actually like get some of this shit taken care of is it's huge. Right. So residents of the Navajo Nation still regard Annie as a role model and as a courageous and caring political figure. She is someone who encouraged, mentored and inspired both men and women to seek government office, which was something natives rarely did. And within Navajo politics, no other female office holder is comparable to Annie. Professor Jennifer Nez Dinettdale calls Annie the most prominent woman council delegate. Period. Full stop. And why did I not learn about her in my history book? Right? Just saying. So Annie shaped her tribe's response to critical issues and became an articulate and outspoken leader of her people whose opinions were respected and managed to influence people. Uh, The former Navajo president, Albert Hale, estimates that Annie was one of the great Navajo leaders um, who led a transition of the Navajo nation from farming and sheep herding to the modern mixed economy of today, as well as the fact that she probably saved thousands of lives. All of that is what this guy said she's like she yeah. she saved so many of our tribe members well and not only at the time but with the education the infrastructure all the groundwork she laid exactly. that continues to save lives yep so annie's long tenure and tenacious champion of championing why is champion championing why is that such championing? a hard word? Championing. 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 Why championing. is that such a hard word? Um, Because I want it to be champing yeah, or championing. Exactly. <laughs> um, What's championing? <laughs> but she, you know, championed a lot of the issues important to Native Americans and service of national advisory. Basically, she did so much shit. And she really, yeah, <laughs> that's all I can think of and, right now. I'm and sorry. she really just brought all of these issues, not only to the eyes of the people that they were affecting, but to the eyes of the nation as a whole. So in 1963, Annie became the first Native American uh, to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which Damn. is one of, I think it's the highest civilian, civilian honor. honor. Um, a lesser honor, but Ladies Home Journal selected her for Woman of the Year in 1976. She's still alive during this part. Yeah. Th- this portion. I'm sorry. Are you knocking Women's Home Journal right now? I'm sorry. It's not as high as the the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Hey, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, that's true. In in 1984, which I have a feeling this probably meant more to Annie than the pres- Presidential Medal of Freedom, but the Navajo Council designated her the legendary mother of the Navajo Nation. Yeah. Oh my god. And this this was really to recognize that through her efforts in education and health, the lives of every Navajo as well as the nation at large had been improved by her. Well, she really is kind of doing that mothering thing where she's going around to all these tribes, all or not tribes, all these villages, all these individuals. She's like, 
let me take care of you. Let me, right. and not only let me help you, but let me help you help yourself. Right. You know, so the whole nation could grow and mature. And oh my. Yeah. So in 1992, Annie was in declining health, but she made her final trip to Washington to receive an Indian Achievement Award. A companion that was traveling with her reported, quote, as we entered the banquet hall, she came alive. That was her turf, her territory. Like, she she just loved being around people. She would go on to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Arizona in 1996, um, and her grandson, Milton Bluehouse Jr., would go and accept the award for her on her behalf because she was too sick to attend. And he observed, quote, I didn't know she was famous until about my senior year of high school. Before that, I figured she was just my grandma, and I thought grandmas just did these things. They jump in their trucks and they go places because she was still traveling around yeah. I was like, they just jump in their trucks and go it's like wait your grandma doesn't go and help improve the public health infrastructure of an entire nation what your, your grandma what? doesn't travel to washington every like year your That's grandma weird. didn't get the presidential medal of freedom mm, she sounds pretty basic to me right? so annie would pass away at the age of 87 in 1997 damn um she would get quite a few posthumous honors. In 2000, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls. Yay! Yay! In, uh, in 2006, uh, President George W. Bush uh, focused on her during Women's History Month, stating, quote, Presidential Medal of Freedom winner Anne Waneka, which is Annie, come on, uh, worked to educate her native Navajo community about preventing and treating disease. I'm like, really, George? That's all you said? Yeah. He, but he, he, he read the like first line of her Wikipedia her. page. Yeah, no, exactly. yeah, like he he read the summary he totally of her had biography. AKA Navajo name, like in yes. his notes, and was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't say that. Yes. <laughs> um, in a statement celebrating all women on International Women's Day in 2017, Navajo Nation President Russell. The Gaye paid tribute to Annie for her lifetime of leadership and work dedicated to improving the health and welfare of the Navajo people. Her life was called an inspiration to young people, and she was extolled for continuing to be the driving force for change on the nation. That's really beautiful. Also, is that the same last name as her mom? The Gaye? Yeah. Yes. Oh. So. Maybe. Descendant of maybe one of her step siblings or half siblings. Just saying. That, that'd be a cool connection. Like, obviously, people can have the same last name and not actually be related, but. Right. Uh, so, in slightly more recent news, I guess that was 2017. So, go stepping back a little, I guess. 20. So, because this was something separate that I found in a completely different article. So, that's why it's like separate. It's because my notes were like scattered. But in 2015, the National Collab- Collaborative for Women's History Sites, or the NCWHS, NCWHS. National Collaborative for Women's History Sites. (laughs) Worked together with the National Park Service, the NPS, much easier. um, And they embarked on a project to recognize the national significance of Annie. One of them, they view her as one of the most distinguished and influential 20th century Native American leaders. So the NCWHS commissioned the preparation of a a national historic landmark, not nominated. The preparation of a National Historic Landmark nomination honoring Annie under the NPS Women's History Initiative. I couldn't find anything about it. I don't know if it never got made or if it's still in process because goddamn bureaucrats can move slow. But they want it. And if it comes to fruition, there are fewer than 2,600 historic properties in the United States that actually receive a National Historic Landmark designation. Holy shit. 
So, fingers crossed. Because that would be sweet. That'd be fucking amazing. And, yeah, that's Annie Dodge Waneka. You did a really good job. Thanks. I, I'm very proud of you. Also, I had to look this up. So, we covered uh, Susan LaFleche Placote. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think you I covered think her. I did, yeah. Yep. And uh, she was also an indigenous woman mm-hmm. who made notable strides in health. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God. But, like, when was she around? So... She was born in 1865 and died in 1915. And Annie was born in 1910. So there is a five-year overlap where these two bad medical babes were fucking alive. And, like, obviously, one was doing, you know, a little more advanced than the other. But still, I, I think that's so cool. But then even the whole idea of, like, Annie being born in 1910 and then dying in 1997 or whatever. Yeah. It's like, okay, 1997 doesn't feel like a long time ago. But 1910 feels like an entirely different planet. And just the ridiculous amount of history that woman witnessed from World War I, the, the 1918 epidemic, you know, influenza. Right. World War II. Like, the civil rights, like, oh, my God, she saw it all. And she was doing stuff the whole time. She wasn't just sitting back as an observer. She was making her own history, and that's just really incredible. Yeah, I agree. Hot damn, Annie. She truly is a bridge person. I'm trying to find more about the potential for the building. Um, It does sound like there's the... Clogato Chapter House, which sits on the Navajo Nation uh, land in Arizona. And they have a lot about like her life and the significant activities of her. Um, and they actually like worked with her family members, including like her daughter and stuff to, I- to identify the building most closely associated with her life of service um, and to appropriate for designation within the tenets of Navajo culture. So they actually like worked with her to um, like pick a building and everything else. And this chapter house is where Annie developed her political skills and is associated with the community she represented and served for her entire career. How wonderful is that, that she lived to have that kind of input? Yeah, I think you know it's what amazing. I mean? Like, that's so cool. So it is, And yeah, so that was designated a national or. It was nominated to be a National Historic Landmark. I do not know if it actually became Let's get one that shit done. Not. Historians, assemble! Let's do it. <laughs> then we can all put that on our resumes. Hell yeah. So, Kelly, my dear, my darling, what are you thankful for? I am thankful to have a day off tomorrow and have a long weekend. It's it's been it's been a hot couple of weeks. It's been yeah. it's been a hot minute. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Um, so I'm I'm ready for a little bit of downtime. I mean, I am also thankful that last weekend we didn't like have anything to do. So that was pretty nice. You got to have a chill weekend. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I'm just I'm thankful to be able to have that time. I guess in my life that I can just not do things for a little while yeah uh what about you what are you thankful for um so as you may or may not be aware of we had midterms like just recently you're sick (laughs) no um no we we just had our midterms and i uh got to work as an election 
an election judge again. This is my second time doing it. The first time was for the primaries. And it went really well, actually. Um, we had more people volunteering. Oh, it was good. it was cool to see more people who were like around my age because last time yeah, I was no one at where by I leaps voted. and bounds the youngest yeah. person. No, no one where I for voted 10 square was, miles. No one where I voted was under fifty, guaranteed. Yeah. Um, but there, there was uh, one woman I was kind of chatting with and she, she's a retiree, but this was her first time working and she really enjoyed it. And, uh, no one was too weird. Like the, the, one of the head election judges was kind of like, Hey, if anyone starts getting snippy with you, like be nice, but don't take any shit, like call one of us over and we'll take care of it. I'm like, Oh, it's like retail. Like I want to speak to the manager. Fortunately, at least while I was working, I didn't have any of those issues. Everyone was very nice. Saw one of my old social studies teachers from high school and my old high school swim coaches. <laughs> I think that's what you said last year, too, that you saw your swim coaches. I did. I saw them again. That's fine. And, and uh, one of the coaches, Coach Megan, what's up? She was like, oh, my God, Emily, I was wondering if I'd see you here. And I'm like, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. No, it was that was cool. But no, it just it felt good because, you know, there are some people that walk in and you like you know, they're, they're not wearing like campaign swag, but just something that makes it very clear what their political ideals are. And it's one of those things where, hey, you're coming in and you are voting like you're doing the damn thing. And I'm really thankful to be here and help with that to like help facilitate that. And it just it felt good. It felt good to take an active part in the process like, like beyond voting, it just felt really good to help facilitate it and, you know, be able to just be nice to people and, you know, like, thank you for coming in to vote today. Oh, my God. You know? Yeah. Because I think Minnesota has one of the highest turnout rates in the country, which is wild to me. Like, not in a bad way, but I'm just like, whoa, damn, Minnesota, you show up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I, I'm thankful for that opportunity. The other thing I'm thankful for in that... um, the group of election workers consisted of white men, black men, white women, black women, Asian women, uh, like like just people of all different ages, races, ethnicity, like everything. It was like a rainbow coalition of people who are just making it easy to vote. And I was just thinking, every time I looked around the room, I'd look at something and be like, you know, you didn't, you weren't able to vote at one point. Yeah. So you wouldn't have been able to vote. I wouldn't have been able to vote. Like so many, like, like I've never, I've never had to think about I will say, fighting for the right to vote. Yeah. It's, yeah. The only thing I got annoyed at is like, I, we were too late for the cutoff the first time Obama was elected. Yes. We were a year <laughs> too young or something. Yeah. Like, like just barely. And I was so pissed. I will say I laughed at uh, a post bulletin article this morning because they were like, incumbents maintain control of Rochester School Board. I'm like, that's because no one ran against them. No, they did, but they ran against the light. They were. No, in my ward, at least, over here, there was no competition oh, for our school board members. See, in mine, there was. And the thing was, it was a. So the, the challengers were all like. COVID's a myth. Like they were all running on the same platform together. Yeah. There was also it was it was sketch. There was also no incumbents for whatever the backside of our ballot was. Yeah, the judges. Is, yeah, all and, the judges. And I was like, 
Mm. <laughs> I kind of chucked. This doesn't really feel like a choice. Justin was like, I didn't fill in any of those bubbles. I'm like, I filled in every fucking bubble. Yeah, no, you. I'm here. I'm here. I'm filling in the maybe, bubbles. Maybe they. Maybe school board is, is what wasn't the one I was thinking. Maybe it was just the judges I was thinking. Yeah, because I just I chuckled that they were like, like, but our school, but yeah, all the incumbents won. Yeah, probably yeah. because the other party was insane. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was. It was kind of like that. We had a lot of incumbents. It was kind of uh, that, like, COVID's a myth. Rewin their like, position. Like, we should all get COVID and get over it, like, kind of fringe bullshit. Like, our mayor stayed the same. Which one, I'm happy One of about. our city council members, or two of um, two of the wards kept the same city council member. The third ward that uh, didn't, the incumbent didn't run again. Mm-hmm. Our governor stayed the same, which I'm happy about. Uh, oh, shit. Last I checked, I think our attorney general stayed the same. I didn't. I don't think our the incumbent ran, did they? No, he did. Uh, Keith Ellison, because uh, the other guys they like didn't put it up here. Because so. uh, the other guy was it Schultz? He's oh. like, I hate abortion. Me, 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 me. Yeah, he was, and then crazy. He spent so much of his career being like anti-abortion, but then he was mad. That in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, he's like, I don't know why people are talking about this or like my anti-abortion stance. That's not one of the issues here. And I'm like, you're running for the attorney general of our goddamn yeah. state. Keith do you Ell- not Keith go? Won again. Oh, thank God. I'm like, do you not know what the job is? You. He also <sighs> won specific, like Olmstead County. Like Sweet. voted for him. Um, we were very common, just like a lot of states, where like if you actually look at Minnesota, people are like, I don't understand how you're a blue state because if you actually look at our state, it is ninety percent red. But it's where our we're very very populous yeah. that we're Democrat, and so we always end up. I was going to say the, the rural the the places where it's predominantly Republican, there aren't a lot yeah, of people and there. So it's funny because it, so it's like um, not Morris because Morris is technically. No, it's Morris in Minnesota. So, like, right along the border of, like, North Dakota, there's, like, a chunk that's blue. And then, like, Duluth is all blue. Mm-hmm. And then the Twin Cities is all blue. And then Rochester is all blue. And yeah. then the majority, like, almost everything else is red. Yeah. Hey, that's uh, that's a majority for you. That's what I was going to say. Like, that is super common. If you look at mm-hmm. a lot of um, blue blue states, like California is also notoriously that way. And so, yeah, I, I always just think it's funny when I look at maps, like, of blue it, states. Sometimes it'll stress me out a little bit, and then I'm like, wait, wait. Yeah. It's not it's not the size that matters. Because, yeah, even if I look, even if I hover over, um, like, for example, Wisconsin and their Senate results, it was 50.5 to 49.5. Yeah. Wisconsin is kind uh, of a grab bag. But a lot Lately. of a lot of them are like yeah. some of them aren't as close because they had more people running. Wisconsin, I think, just had one of each, mm-hmm. um, a Republican and a <laughs> Democrat. Yeah. Um, so that's why they're so close. But like even the ones that had like multiple candidates, they were all like super fucking close. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Uh, and this is the last thing I'll say about our local politics, because 99 percent of people don't care what's going on in Minnesota. Um they can just skip this section. I thought I thought it was interesting. Um, okay, Trump. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we're we're still talking about him. He's still out there. He actually endorsed. Oh God, what was it? Was it Schulz or was it the guy who was running for governor? He endorsed like one of the Republican candidates in Minnesota. 
And normally that's like, you have God's blessing. You're the guy. Everyone's going to vote for you. The candidates actually were like, ooh, I didn't ask for your endorsement. And they sidestepped it because they're like, oh, I'm really thankful. We're not going to promote this. They're like, I'm really thankful for everyone's support, but I didn't ask for that. And I really think it's because he's become a cancer. Like people don't want to be associated with him because he's too much. Well, and there's such strong feelings on like both sides yes. about him. And yeah, I think people are like, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. No, it's it's like, ooh, because you're isolating a lot of moderates. Exactly. And moderate Republicans in that way. Because to be, I, I firmly believe that the people who are like hardcore Trumpers are in the minority. But God, they're loud. Right. And God, they're just going to, I don't know, go storm the Capitol or whatever. Okay. Well, shit. I okay. That's my I fault. was so excited because I'm like, look at all this rainbow of people who used to not have the right to vote, and then we got into this. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still think it's still on the same thing that it's just like yeah. people's voices are actually being heard. Yeah, and that's why states can be mostly red and still still go blue is because people are getting out. People are voting. People yeah. who used to not be able to vote. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was nice. And just doing this podcast has given me a greater appreciation for, you know, the struggle that people have had to go through to get the rights that I so freely enjoy and don't think twice about today. You know, like I just I appreciate it more and I appreciate being a woman and being able to work as an election official. So suck it, patriarchy. Well, I'm sorry that I ruined your tangent. No, we we brought it back. Suck it, patriarchy. We're good. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory. Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We'll see how long that lasts. Twitter in general. Dude, fuck. Twitter in general. Do not fucking even. (laughs) I cannot do this right now. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where we got some sweet merch as well as a contact form and everything else. Literally anything you need is probably on our website. So just go there. Um, And rate us five stars wherever you listen because that makes Emily really happy. It will cure her illness. No, probably not. It will cure my illness. It will cure your happiness. Here's the thing. If you rate us five stars, it's going to piss off that person in your life. Yeah, that person that you immediately thought of. It's going to piss them off so bad. So do it, do it, do it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. Bye.